takes some of the top moments from our Friday happy hour where Morgan and I answer your questions in our community live every Friday and cut them up and put them together for you. So hopefully you'll enjoy. Morgan, why don't you ask that? What was that question that came up again? Uh, so we can dive yeah, so on that one. That's a question for Mike. Um, Win-loss rate tracking. Interested to see how people track the prospect if they've been ghosted and which just seems to be the net, the new no. And wants yep. to see, how, do you mark them as loss or you put them back in the funnel? Cool. So what I'm going to say on this one, I'll say it again, is is I really do believe that you should mark it as lost, right? Because if they, especially if you go through the process, and for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, probably two or three posts ago on the blog, we've mapped out the exact approach to somebody following up after a qual call or after a demo, where you send them your typical follow-up, they ghost you, you then say, still interested, you know, could you get back to me? And then did I lose you? And then, hey, it doesn't look like this is a priority for you anymore. If you go through that process and they still ghost you, then yes, close lost that one. But what I would do as a manager here, I was make sure that there was actually the category close lost ghosted, right? So we can actually analyze some of those results and, and look back at the quarter and say, how many times did that happen, right? Because if that's constantly happening from for opportunities, not just after you talk to somebody and it was a good conversation, but if you legit had an opportunity there and they straight up ghosted you, there's something wrong there. You're either not talking to the right person or, you know, there's something missing in your sales process. Now, that also means that when if that deal does come back, right, then you can open up a new opportunity. And then again, measure how many of the ghosted op losts turn into actual new opportunities again. But what it'll also do is it'll help you understand like, hey, if I turn it into an opportunity again, they ghosted me last time, so what can I do this time to make it different so they don't ghost me again? And that's where maybe you do the preemptive strike on the next one. So say they come back to you six months later and say, yeah, sorry, Morgan, you know what, uh, let's re-engage here. And then they go through the process, send me a proposal and all that other stuff. I would actually preemptively adjust, hey, this time, like, could you do me a favor if you're not interested or if for whatever reason you got to push this for another few months, could you just let me know this time? Because last time you kind of disappeared on me. So I would absolutely close loss, but close loss ghost and then reignite re it once it comes back into the pipeline, if it does. Back to the question. So uh, another question, this was from Instagram. So based on your story from yesterday, have you seen success with multiple reply all for cold emails rather than someone who's a warm lead and has just ghosted? So just like thinking about instead of doing like where you're doing large email blasts for cold accounts, should you do like just a new thread with a new email going after an account? I'm unclear. So, let me rephrase again. So, have you seen success with re multiple reply all for cold, cold emails for someone who's a warm lead that has just ghosted? Okay. So that's the like completely like reply all, reply all back to the entire okay. thread or gotcha. start a new message to re-engage? So, okay, I got it. Um, so, I like replying all but... Because first, the reason I like replying all is because I want them to see uh, the other emails I've sent them, right? So I want, I don't, because who knows, depending on if you're using an email tracking tool or something like that, you know, they might not be getting it or whatever. They might not be opening it. So I like to show like, hey, I've been coming at you, right? And, and so you can scroll down and see all these different messages. Now, what I do though is uh, depending on the, the touch and the reason I changed the subject line. 
right? Mm -hmm. So that's why, again, I'm going to go back to that cadence that we do when somebody ghosts us. I take the typical email, reply all to it, leave the subject line. Hey, you still interested in this? Da, 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 right. You know, Hey, do you want to reschedule or something like that? And then reply all erase that subject line and put still interested. And then say, Hey, could you get back to me one way or the other? And then reply all to that again and, and erase that subject line and put, did I lose you? Right. Yes. So it's changing the subject line, um, but it's keeping the, the flow. Now that's for when somebody ghosts me, when it comes to a contact strategy, Again, same thing. I can't. I maintain the the email string, but every new topic because we talk about having a different reason every single time. Every time you have a new reason, I change the subject line to reflect that reason. Mm -hmm. So it's like if my first one was you to about a merger and acquisition, and my next one to you is about you know your growth objectives or something like that. I'll keep the chain, but I'll erase that subject line and say your growth objectives instead of your your merger and acquisition because mm -hmm. I just think it feels a little weird. And I also want to get credit for it without saying, hey, did you get my first email? I just think it's a little weird to like send an email to somebody today and then four days later send another email to them like that email never happened. Right. And they were completely disjointed as far as uh, like totally different reasons. Like I like to tell that story and keep it connected. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I agree the same way. It's more so referencing referencing the previous email that you said, but saying but adding on to that story. Right. So it's like, like as if you're reading a book, like obviously chapter one is going to be different than chapter two, but you're still reading the same theme of that, that actual book. So that's more so how I see it. So when you're sitting out those messages, always think about it as if you're reading a book or even watching a movie, like there's different parts of it, but it's all still the same thing. Yeah. It's part of that story. We got to keep reinforcing. It's the story. It's the story, right? It's yep. multiple touches, the story. So cool. Yep. From Callan, uh, question is how do you, how do, how do you keep track of your activity outside the CRM. Yeah, so you and I have talked about this recently. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I think it, so for me, it's Evernote and Salesforce, period. Um, you know, and I'm, so I, my three main apps that I work with are Evernote, uh, Outlook, and Salesforce. Yeah. What I do is I track all my activities in Salesforce. So like, as far as when I have to call somebody or when I have to follow up with whatever it is, that's Salesforce all day long. I use my, I use Evernote to take all my notes and then I use Outlook to really manage the communication. And I I'll BCC my emails to Salesforce so they get tracked in there. But every once in a while for an account that I'm actually having a, a, a good dialogue with, or that they send me some really like good information that is, you know, based on their sales process or something like that. I'll actually uh, tag that in Evernote as well. So I'll save that email to Evernote so that when I'm in there and I'm, I'm taking notes and, and looking at their account, the next meeting mm -hmm. I have with them, I can kind of scroll through and be like, oh yeah. So I'm not going back into Salesforce. So that's my flow. Um, but, uh, but yeah, how do you do it? So I have, I have, so I have Evernote, Costello, and then I'm getting more into Salesforce. Um, those are those are like my main three. And then I have I actually have a ton of sticky notes on my desk too of stuff that like maybe John's like, yo, you need to do this, or Megan's like, hey, you need to pay attention to this. Like I write it down because if I don't, then I will just straight up forget and I go put it like in Evernote somewhere. Yeah. So Costello's for my qualification calls and my sales calls. Uh, Evernote is for the accounts that I want to go into. So when I do research into accounts. I go find those triggers beforehand before I even reach out. And then I'll actually put in the, maybe a YouTube video that I found or maybe an article or whatever, just so it's all there. 
um, from a highly targeted standpoint. So then I can tell a story and I don't have to keep going back to the website and keep don't have to go back to LinkedIn profile. That actually brings up a good point. I'm sorry, go ahead. And then, and then, and then Salesforce, you know, using to follow up with the with accounts and the contacts because it's just, it's it gets to be, and I think this is something that even for all SDRs, you know, for that are out there listening, like biggest thing is to understand how to use Salesforce because I've definitely probably, I because I have some, I have a good memory, but as you continuously work different opportunities and people tell you to follow up, you, your memory is just not that good. So you have to have these tasks scheduled out um, and I've been very more, I've been more diligent about that this, this uh, past month and this month. And it's definitely helped me out a lot. Yeah. I mean, I quite honestly, I, I have a horrible memory, um, but I remember everything because it's in Salesforce I, yeah. and I, and, and people like, it's amazing how many times on a weekly basis people are like, Oh, John, Hey, yeah. Thanks for hitting me up. Oh, Oh yeah. I forgot. Right. Oh man, you got a good memory, blah, blah, blah is because I have that activity set. And then I look at my notes in Evernote and I make a reference to that and then ping them. Right. So you got to figure out a system. You got to like whatever works for you, but the more task oriented you are, the more effective you're going to be. The more you try to rely on this to remember, there's no way like people, wonder how I'm as productive as I am in the sense that, you know, I, I probably, you know, on average, uh, that on average, I do about, I'd say 30 to 40 activities a day that I do like from in Salesforce, I get 200 emails a day from clients and prospects and that type of thing. I manage about 30 to 40 active accounts and I prospect into accounts and there's no fucking way I'd be able to do that without Salesforce. No way. Yeah. So one more point, though, to make what I used to do kind of old school stuff, going back to looking for triggers, like you said, uh, for accounts, can't recommend it enough to do all your research at the same time, right? So if you're going to pick an account and you're going to do research on them, don't just look for one thing, look for five, six, seven things so you can tell your story. And what I used to do is I used to sit up, so I used to take my top 25, uh, put them into a spreadsheet, right? So I had the, the company name, the next column was the, was the website, the next column was the, the person that I wanted to reach out to, like the contact. And then the next column was their LinkedIn profile, right? A link to their LinkedIn profile. So those four columns. And then column five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 would be uh, reason one, reason two, reason three, reason four, reason five. And all I would do is when I was like home, chilling out, sitting on the couch or something like that, watching football or something dumb, like I would just sit there and poke around on people's websites and I would just look for stuff. I'd be like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. That, you know, that's good enough. You know what I mean? Like not like caring, like, oh, this is the perfect thing, but just like who gives a shot? Oh, there's something interesting, interesting, interesting. And I would put the triggers in each one of those fields, right? Or each one of those columns for that account. Yeah. And so when I would come in on Monday, I wouldn't be doing research. I'd just be looking at those, crafting up my stories and firing them off. So that's a way to, if you want to do really high quality stuff, that's a, that's a kind of a, just an old school using spreadsheet that way to gather the information, but then obviously deliver it. However, your, you know, your CRM or whatever, you know, you need to. Yeah. And this will be an ongoing conversation. I'm, I'm doing it. It's just called the Evernote. It's just called high quality prospecting, taking like five to 10 accounts, going and finding those triggers and then finding the people that I need to contact within that account and then telling the story to, I'm going to tell it to each persona uh, from a VP level and above. And we're going to see how it all pans out. But that's something that I'm, I'm trying out new and going to see how that how that works. Because normally I would just go very high volume, but mm-hmm. taking a different approach. 
Yeah. And that's again, why I love Evernote too, right? Because I might not be, I might see an alert through Owler or Gmail, you know, Google alerts or whatever it is that is like, oh shit, there's some cool stuff right there, but I don't have time right now to think about the story or how I'm going to craft that. So I'll just clip that in Evernote, throw it in their file. And then when I have time to sit down and actually go through it, then I'll be like, oh cool. Look at all this stuff. Right. From Ryan um, is asking, Hey, what do you look for in a new sales gig? besides believing in the product? Um, I, I, my answer to this was managers, right? Which is, um, you know, it's very evident the data all supports this, that the number one reason reps, anybody stays or leaves at a company is there is not leadership, big, you know, executives, da, da, da. it's literally the frontline manager. You could work at the best company on the planet, but if your frontline manager sucks, you're going to bail. You could have, you could work at the worst company on the planet, but if your frontline manager is there in the trenches with you grinding and is open and transparent with you, then you'll stay. Right. Um, so the, the follow-up question on that from my comment was how do you figure that out? Right. And this is where I, I don't think enough reps do this when they're interviewing for jobs. And I know I didn't when I was young. I, I interviewed for the position. You know what I mean? Like I was there with my resume, like, OK, what questions do you have for me? I really didn't start interviewing them until about midway through, like until I started to really kind of figure out my, my game and, and have confidence in my game, like real confidence. Um, I never I, I started I was always being interviewed, not interviewing them. And I think that's a really critical, important thing. Like you need to interview the company as much as they are interviewing you. Cause this is, this is, look, you're a number for them. At the end of the day, I, you know, nobody likes me to hear this, but you are replaceable period. I remember when I was at thrive, you know, I had five, I have five kids reporting to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was the founder of the company, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, and I took them out of the Celtics game and we were having this conversation and there, it was like a good guy. And I, and I forget how it came up, but I said, guys, I just want to let you all know that, like, I hate to say it, but we are all replaceable. We have to always produce results. We always have to be doing our job or we're replaceable. And they started getting mad at me. They were like, John, that's a terrible thing from a culture standpoint. And I, and I go, no, 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 you don't understand, guys. I'm replaceable. Mm -hmm. I'm the VP of sales here. I was the fifth person on board. If I miss our numbers as a company, if we miss our revenue numbers for two quarters in a row, my friends who started this company with me will fire me and they will find somebody else to fill my gap, right? So they're interviewing you, but understand that if you're not interviewing them, you're, you're, you're just going to be at their whim, right? So that's why, and also if you've got a good manager who's interviewing you, First of all, I always ask to interview with the hiring manager, right? You're probably going to have to go through the HR stuff first, but then ask, can I meet with the, my, who would be my direct report? And can I, inter, can, I, can I have a meeting with them? And then come in prepared with questions. Nothing pisses me off more than doing an interview with a rep and, and me being like, what questions do you have for me? And they'll be like, well, none. All right. It's like, okay, see you later. And the questions are, you know, so how do you develop, how do you coach? You know what I mean? What's your philosophy on coaching? How often do you coach your team, you know, like your team members? What are some of the coaching plans that you've put in place to, to see results? Yep. You know, what, what drives you about being a manager? Really, like literally flip the script on them and interview them. Um, that to me will give you a really good sense of whether that manager is going to be in it with you and going to be able to really help you get to the next part of your career and, and therefore stay with that company. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. The best 
best advice I got during college was, you know, during your interviews to interview someone else, as John said, but also to understand like where that leader is coming from, because a job, I mean, especially from a, from a sales or SDR standpoint, like you're pretty much doing, it's like the same thing. Like you're not, you're going to call the people, like you're going to go through sales cycle. There's nothing too crazy. But the thing is, is like, what is that leader teaching you? And can they actually get you to the level that you want to go to? So, and if you don't think that that leader can do that, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't join that team, regardless of what the product's doing and regardless of where the industry's at. That's just my personal opinion, because mm-hmm. you're going to get frustrated and then that leader's not going to support you. And also you're not going to get the guidance and development that you need. Right. That's the number one thing that I look for. Um, if I'm going anywhere is the leadership. And that's what I've always tried to identify from the get go. And I think from there, the, the next two things that I said were, uh, number two is like, what's the trajectory of your career? So you could be like, oh, I love this leader, but they're like, yeah, so you got to be in this position for like three years. And so you need to know that. And you don't just need to be like, oh, I'm just super excited because someone decided to actually go with me. You need to understand like, what's your actual career growth? Because you it, you could get in there and then be blindsided and you're like, oh, you forgot to ask. Well, that's, that's on you. You should have asked and figured that out. Um, and then number three is also like, what, how is the market working? Right. So like, is it actually a market that's going to actually grow so that the career directory can actually grow with it? So for example, if someone decided today, cool, I want to go create a CRM. There's a ton of CRMs out there. So especially with Salesforce being the giant it is. So it's like, okay, that you may not go as fast as you think that you are. So I think it's understanding and doing the research of where the company's going. Are they actually solving a problem? That's like a real need. Like what's the, you can check on LinkedIn, how fast they're growing. So those are three things that I'm looking at from a sales job because I don't want to, I don't want to have a ceiling at all. I don't want to be stopped by external factors. Mm-hmm. Like if I get stopped, I want to be like, yo, that was me. I don't want to get stopped because, oh, the, you know, the executive team made these decisions and now I'm sitting here in sales and I'm actually good at what I do and I can't go anywhere because of everything. And it goes back to, this is me going on a tangent here, but it goes back to timing too. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand where you need to be so that you can actually move in the right direction. And it even goes back to like, that's why I chose Termis because I knew the timing was correct. I knew that there was a good market fit. There was time to capitalize. And if I had gone somewhere else and decided, oh, I want to go to Salesforce and I knew the trajectory would have been different. Like they're already established, probably wouldn't be able to even create the SDR Chronicles. So it's just like understanding where you want to go and like how much they're going to give you. And then, so you can actually put your skill sets to use and you don't feel like it's a complete waste of time for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last two pieces I'll add to that are check Glassdoor. You know what I mean? Like Glassdoor on the feedback on, on from other reps and take it for what it's, you know, take it as a data point, not your decision factor. Cause a lot of people who go on Glassdoor, you know, they complain cause they got fired or something like that. And you know, you don't know the other side of the story, but the other thing is not only you're interviewing your managers, but see if you see if they'll be open to letting you kind of have a call with a rep or two, you know what I mean? And, and because I'd be very worried if I was going into a company um, who wouldn't let me talk to my, the potential hire, my manager, and talk to a couple of the reps to get a better understanding of what a day in the life of a rep looks like. I'd be very, very concerned with a company that wouldn't allow that to happen. Yep. So just by asking that question and seeing what their feedback is on this, again, if, if I'm a hiring manager and you did that to me, I'd be like, 
okay, this kid is serious about figuring this out, right? So I'd, I personally, I would be impressed, right? And I'd want you to go talk to some of my reps. I'd want you to talk to people to see what kind of a leader, what kind of a manager I was. The managers who are uncomfortable or who are not that good and know there's dissension within the ranks, they're not, they're going to be like, well, no, that's not part of our process. Sorry, you know, we'll tell you that type of thing. And that, those are, those are red flags to me. Question that Lance asked in here, uh, kind of hear our thoughts here. At what point, at which point does lack of sales become because of this, because of the product and not the rep? Uh, team hasn't sold anything for the past four months and we've been doing a lot of demos. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. That's tough. Uh, you know, there's a lot to that as far as the variables there. Yep. Um, obviously, if you haven't sold something for four months, something, something's wrong. You know what I mean? Whether it's pricing or, uh, or yeah, it, it's hard for me to say that four months, I mean, I don't know how many sales reps or, or that, if it was only one or two sales reps, then yeah, I'd probably put that on the sales rep saying, yeah, they kind of suck. If you literally haven't sold shit in four months. <laughs> um, but if there's, you know, if there's a few, if there's like five, six, seven, ten 10 reps on that team and, and nothing's closed in four months, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong with Alan, man. Um, I, I, again, I don't want to throw red flags out because I don't know the scenario. Uh, and I don't want to call out, you know, whoever Lance who asked that as far as, you know, giving too much detail on the company or anything like that. But my gut tells me that it's just not, it's a, it's a, it, you know, we talk a lot about the must have versus the like to have thing. Yeah. Um, it sounds to me that probably would be in the like to have category of products and um and and it really is just it's something that's cool but uh so you, you got to figure out a way either you're not talking to the right people that's another potential here is that those pitches those demos are all just to people non-power right yeah. um so i would look at who you're presenting to it's kind of like when you and i talked right when you first got all those deals in and they were all with sdr managers but they just sat there right yep. now from a forecast standpoint like, I don't want to see anything on the forecast that doesn't have power checked off on the scorecard, right? Because yeah. if we didn't pay attention to that, you could be going all day long, getting, you know, shitloads of deals in the pipeline that just don't go anywhere, don't close because of that one thing. So now yeah. it's almost like, who gives a shit? If you don't have any of those deals that are closing, and the main reason is we haven't gone to power, then I want you to be as aggressive as you possibly can, because it's not even worth having a conversation if power isn't engaged. Yeah. Um, so I would look at that. And this actually speaks to why it's so important to have a sales process, right? To have something that you can follow to look back at, to, to, to analyze, right? So that you can say, we're trying these things. We presented this way and we're tweaking it and we're adjusting it because without that, you know, you're just kind of like, I don't know what's working. I always say any process is better than no process, right? So what are the stages? What are the conversion ratios between those stages? What are the things that you need to make sure happen in those stages? And then letting that run. And then after a couple of months, looking at those deals and then close loss about, the, you know, so you got to get real analytical. I guess my, my big point here on, on this one is you have to get real damn analytical in your sales process to be able to figure out what that problem is. Um, so, so that it's not the excuse, the product just totally sucks or it's just not the right fit. Cause I, it's always both. There's, it's not one or the other. It's a sales, you know, skill set and ability and process and the product. If, if it's not going that good, but you have to get as analytical as possible. I would personally, if we missed four months of sales, 
it to me it would be all hands on deck we're diving into salesforce we're looking at every fucking meeting we've had in the past four months what happened who was in those meetings what questions did you ask like what deals got put into the pipeline like i would i would stop everything and spend a three-day workshop digging into the data to figure out what that problem was yeah, that that's highly alarming. And if ever that happened, that's exactly what we would do. I mean, even we even we even did that. You know, like you said, we did that earlier on because it was like, wait, you have all these deals here, but nothing's happening. Like, right. and then we figured out it was power, so then we made that adjustment. And so now, literally, after every single call at the end, I'm like, okay, like I'm gonna let you know exactly what's gonna happen next. You're gonna have to go talk to your boss. Like, yep, you gotta talk to your boss. All right, so here are the things that you need to be paying attention to when you yep. talk to your boss. What else can I give you? I know who you're, I know who you're going to talk to. Do you mean bring with the new thing we added? I can bring John in. If they mention that you, they are familiar with you or some nature that has helped us out a ton. And yep. now we're starting to see deals move faster and we're starting to have conversations. There's, there's the cycle is starting to come shorter. So I think it's understanding it probably what I'm, I don't know all the, the variables. So it's going to be hard for me to be, for us to be like, this is it. But I think it definitely comes down to understanding who you're talking to on the first call and then figuring out who you need to talk to on the next call. Yeah. For me, that's what I've realized. And then now that I'm able to pinpoint that, I'm like, I already know what this is going to lead to. And like, I know I have to talk to this person. The sooner I can talk to the person, the better. And I think it also comes down to understanding how you need to come into the call um, as well. Instead of being like, hey, we're just, we're, we're getting demos left and right, but we're doing it different every single time instead of being like, no, this is the actual process to success. Yeah. And, and I'll give you kind of a, I think as sales reps, we need to be way, most sales reps are not detail oriented. They're not analytical. Um, we need to be more analytical, especially with where technology is going and all this other stuff, right? Like we need to be able to look at the data and, and understand it and speak in that language, right? Because I'll give you an example. Back when we started Thrive, I, um, I was a VP of sales. I was 25 years old. I was doing my thing and it would, you know, and I was literally working, you know, 17 hours a day, seven days a week. Cause we were self-funded, had no money. Right. And so like first couple of years, grind, 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 grind. Right. And then all of a sudden my CFO, who was again, my friend from high school, he would come to me at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year and be like, all right, John, we need to grow another 50% next year. And I'd be like, okay, so how many new reps could I hire? And, you know, that's, you know, 50% over last year, Calvin was good, but now 50% on top of what we just did that year, like, okay. And, 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 and I'd be like, so how many more reps can I hire? How much budget can I get? And he'd be like, oh, well, we don't have any more budget. Like you, you just, we just need to grow 50%. And I would be like, dude, what the fuck? Like, like how, like, I'm, I, there's no, I can't work any harder than I am right now. You know what I mean? And it so frustrated me because I was in this emotional world of I was working so hard. I was working hard. I wasn't working smart in any way, shape or form. Right. And so after that happened two years, the third year, I'm like, I'm not having this conversation anymore because I, I literally can't work any harder than I there's there's not any more hours in the day that I can work. And so I started to get real analytical and I started and we talk about this in the training. We need to look like executives speak Excel. Everybody else speaks word. And when I mean that, like reps talk about ROI and productivity, when an executive talks about ROIs, when am I going to see that ROI? Productivity, how much time are you going to give back to my team, right? So I started to be absolutely fanatical about my conversion ratios. And I would measure how many calls I made on a weekly basis, how many meetings I set up, how many, you know, how many proposals went out the door, how many times we got closed, which closed loss and all that stuff. And I figured out my equation. 
right? An equation, you've heard it plenty of times. 400 dials got me eight meetings, got me four proposals, got me two pieces of closed business every single month. And I ran that, right? And then we analyzed our other channels as far as marketing and SEO and those type of things. And so when, when December came around and we were planning for the next year, it was a very objective conversation because Calvin was like, all right, John, we need to grow another 50%. I'd be like, okay, Calvin, that means I need two, high, two more inside sales reps to make cold calls. We need to invest another $1,000 a month in marketing to drive these type of leads. And we need to actually invest, I need another $500 a month for a budget for marketing events and those type of things. And be like, well, we don't have that kind of money, John. And I'd be like, well, then Calvin, I can't hit your numbers. And I showed it to him. I'm like, look, Calvin, for the past year, I've been analyzing every single data point here. And he was like, Oh shit. Okay. And that now all of a sudden our conversations were very objective and very direct and it wasn't an emotional thing. So that's the thing when I, when I get back to is like your sales process as a sales rep, I think you should be overly analytical with what you do to understand where you're wasting your time, where you're not. Yep. And as a, as a team, if your team isn't doing that, man, then again, all hands on deck, figure out those data points and go back and look at your lost opportunities, go back and look at those, those presentations and how they went, you know, that type of stuff, because it's, it, you can't make decisions uh, based on limited data. Next question by Zachary. So, what type of questions do you ask on a cold call? So this is like the, the SDR out of the blue. Um, Why don't you go with this one first? What's that? Why don't you go with this one first? Oh, yeah. Um, he said, do you ask simple focus questions, qualification questions? Do you ask more broad questions? You have to think differently. Um, this, is a, this is a tough question to answer because it really depends on what objection people are throwing at me. It depends on how detailed I need to get from a qualification standpoint. It also depends on how complex the product is. So there's a lot of variables that go into this question that um, Zach's asking. Um, but for me, like some questions that, you know, I always try to ask, uh, regardless of like what objection I'm going to get. Um, if someone normally gives me an objection and let's say if it's like the, let's say they like, you know, call me back in three months or whatever, I normally ask, okay, you know, that's great. You know, what's going to change between now and then? Mm -hmm. And then they give me whatever answer. And then I normally ask, okay, are you looking to evaluate in three months or implement in three months? So that's another important question. Um, so those are two questions that I normally ask. Um, another question I ask is if I get any objection, I'm not interested. I normally go, hey, so what are the main three projects or priorities that are on, on your plate right now? So then when they give me those three, I can dive into one of those. They normally actually go into our value prop because I wouldn't be calling for any, for no reason. Mm -hmm. um, but those are, those are main ones that, that I normally ask, but it really, for me, the questions that I ask are highly dependent upon the objection that I'm being faced. Mm -hmm. uh, because if no one's giving me any objections, then it's going to be a little bit easier for me to, to ask the appropriate questions for me to guide them down the process. But again, the questions that I'm going to ask is different than most people probably in the audience, because what I'm selling is different. Yeah. I think what you need to realize on a cold call is that you're not selling, right? Well, you're not selling, you're selling the meeting, the time. That's it. You're not selling your product or service. You're selling next steps. You're selling a meeting. You're trying to prove to that person that in that very short period of time, it is going to be worth them sitting down for 15, 20, 30 minutes with you to have a deeper dive discovery. So <clears throat> I talk about having, having go-to questions to, because inevitably when somebody picks up the phone, they're like, I look, I'm not, I, I don't have time right now. So you gotta be, you gotta pop. Right. Yeah. And, and that's why I always have a couple of go-to questions based on the persona, right? Cause you want to ask different questions to different personas. And the goal here is you almost want to hit them to get them like you punch them, if you will, to, to, to get them to stop and think for a second. 
And that's really it. You like come up with questions that are relevant to that persona that get them to think. So here's an example. When somebody, when somebody says, um, when I cold call and somebody's like, Hey John, look, I'm super busy right now. Call me back in a week. I'll be like, look, no problem. I got two questions. I need two minutes of your time. At the end of that, you can tell me to go away. Right. Usually I get sure. Fine. What do you got? Right. Uh, all right. Fine. So my first question to you is, and again, this is usually to a VP of sales. My first question to you is, what are your growth projections this year? And my second question is, are you 100% confident that all of your initiatives right now from a sales perspective are going to help you hit that goal? And by the way, I don't give a shit what the answer to the first question is. I yep. really want to care. I really care about that second question, but I'm setting up that second question with the first question. And the point there is, look, I know VPs of sales. There's not one VP of sales out there that is overly confident in every single initiative they have right now to help them hit their quarter targets, right? Or their yearly targets. And the point of that is, and, I, and I'll even preface, I'll even postscript it with, you know, the reason I ask is because if you are 100% confident that you are going to get to your goals this year with all the initiatives you have in place, it's not worth us having this conversation. So we can hang up now. But if you're not, I just want 15 minutes of your time so I can ask you a few quick questions, see if it makes sense, and share with you some of the stuff that we're doing with other executives like you to help them hit their goals, right? Yeah. So, so I think you do need to have some go-to questions, but, ba but base them on personas. You know what I mean? Like enablement would be, you know, are you uh, ever able to be proactive from an enablement standpoint? Are you always stuck in the reactive mode of being told what to do by VPs of sales? Right. Uh, do you have prospecting as part of your onboarding process and are looking for a solution to plug in so that that can be taken off your plate? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like you again. That's why going back to the ICP and the persona based stuff, once you know that ICP and the persona based stuff and then you make cold calls into that one persona, you can come up with a message to them, two or three questions that are relevant to them and a story. So. No, that's a that's a that's a that's a great one right there. And. And I think everyone needs to think about in, um, you know, what I always tell people too, and I actually made a video on this is write down the objections that you're getting mm -hmm. and then figure out the answers to those and the questions you need to ask towards those objections. Yeah. That's a really, really big one that is, is definitely beneficial. Yeah. And it's all about focus, right? It's like, it, and the problem that most people have is when they make cold calls, they call anybody and everybody who's on their list. They make a call to a VP of sales in a certain industry, a CFO in another industry, a director in this industry, a manager in that industry. And with that, you have to be generic with your approach. I, I'm not smart enough to be able to know how to have relevant, good conversations with all these different types of people when they all pick up the phone in different ways. But if I call every VP of sales in the SaaS industry, I can get my story straight. I can get my message down. I can get my questions. And then I go at it and I can actually, you know, get some momentum around doing that. Yeah. For sure. No, that's that's a good point. And cold calling has been a main topic of conversation for me lately. Like everybody yeah. wants to just have only cold call training or just wants to talk about cold calling. So yeah. it's on the rise as you talked about. So yeah, it's part of the puzzle. Last question from the group here from Lance. And we've talked about this before. Um, any advice on deals that get stuck just just below the power line? Use cases, property managers want the solution, but the owner of the property ultimately has to say yes. And because they don't get involved in daily operations, they're not the usual stakeholder. So they never get involved in the decision-making process. They're at the end for final approval. Tried empowering the champion uh, by trying to send a video over to talk about the solution, but hasn't worked. Any thoughts? Yeah, this is like, you know, we talk about this a lot. This is like getting over somebody's head without pissing them off is 
always is one of the top three challenges in sales. Um, I think it's, you know, there's two types of people that are below the power line. There's people who will always be below the power line, you know, because they like their job and they're nice and comfortable and they've been it for the past 20 years and they're not looking to make waves. Those people are challenging because they're not going to bring you up to the executive, right? Um, they're going to they're, they're gonna keep saying, oh, I'll talk to him, I'll talk to him. Now, in that case, what you really sh- need to do is, I mean, there's just going over their head, right? Um, but you can do it in a tactful way. Yeah. It's challenging though, because what you have to do is you have to go do some homework on the account, right? Or, or that person, like the, the, the executive that you want to get after. And you have to have a separate reason to talk to that person than this person, right? Because if you're just going over somebody's head just because they're not the decision maker and this, we've talked about this before, you're going to piss both people off. Because as a former executive, you know, well, let's talk about here with, with us, right? Like Megan, Megan's our COO, right? Hmm. Megan um, isn't the one who's the final, yes, we're going to make this $50,000 investment, but she's the one that I trust her opinion on, right? So if somebody, because I hired her to do that, like executives delegate, that's what they do. They don't get involved in every fucking decision. And they trust that most of the time they trust their employees to, to tell them what to do. So if Megan were to like, if say somebody was selling a Megan, she was going through the process, whatever it is. And then she just was, for whatever reason, was like, all right, never mind. You know what I mean? Or, or just like slow rolling that person or ghosting them or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden that rep reached out to me out of nowhere and was like, hey, dude, uh, I've been working with Megan. She's disappeared on me. Like, blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, dude, what the fuck are you reaching out to me for? You know what I mean? Like if obviously if Megan isn't responding to you, then there's a reason for that. Like she doesn't want your shit. And, and now not only do you, you're going to piss off Megan, but you're going to piss off me too. Right. So, and that's, if it's the same reason. Now, if you have a separate reason, if you reach out to me and say something like, Hey, John, I've been working with Megan to address your whatever needs, right? Like these type of needs down here. Um, as, and I like this phrase right here, as I learn more about your business, right. I actually noticed where you said this or your post, you know, you blogged about that or, you know, you you were quoted in a magazine where you said this. Right. And I wanted to reach out to you just to kind of get a better understanding from a from your visionary perspective about how some of the tactical things we're doing down here might align with where you're going. Can I get some time on your account to have that conversation? I might not say yes to that, but that is a much more respectful way of getting me engaged. Um, And that's for somebody who's blocking. Now, somebody who's on their way up right? Where you can look at their LinkedIn profile or something like that. And you can tell that they're on their way up. Then you can work with that person to help them. And that's why I ask questions like, Hey, how do I make you look good? Right. Uh, and, and we've talked about this, like preemptively addressing. So this is the preemptive strike objection all day long, yep. which is, Hey, you know what we SDR manager, right? Hey, um, look, I get it. You got to roll this up to your VP. I totally understand. Hey, look, I was a former SDR manager, right, man? I knew a lot of times when I would come to my VP, like it would be a pretty short, like, sorry, whatever, or kick it down. Do you agree that this is the best solution? Like, do you think that this is going to make a difference? So what can we do to make sure that that doesn't happen? What can we do to make sure that as you move this upstream, that we both get what we're looking for here? Can I get in on that meeting with you? Do you think that would help? You know what I mean? So you kind of gauge it, like, you know, it's going to happen. Like, you know, that person's going to go up there and that person's the, the likelihood of that person saying yes is not high. So I would just preemptively address it. And then the last point I'll flip it over to you is this is why I think it's so important to go top down when prospecting. Because if you go after the, the C level, right, 
and with a message that's, hey, what's up? You know, I was doing some research and I saw this, whatever it is, and, and who on your team can I have a conversation with about that? And they refer you down to that, this person. Well, now you have an open lane to go back up if you need to, and it's not out of the blue. If you go bottom up and then you try to engage here when this person's not, good luck, right? So I would look at it that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, such on a lot of points that, you know, I, I would, I would touch on, I think what it really, really comes down to is just having a, just an, like the printed strike of under, like, like I talked about earlier at the end of the conversation to let people know, like, Hey, look, like I've had this conversation before uh, with other people like yourself. And I know that, you know, the industry maker is this. So I, if this is something that you're, it sounds like you're interested in, like these are the steps that we're going to have to take um, just so I, so I know. And then it's just important to, if you can look on LinkedIn or whatever data you have to figure out who's actually that person who's going to be the indecision maker and be like, Hey, can, when can we loop them in as soon as possible? Um, I think that's the best way to do it. And then also if, you know, someone's saying that, Hey, I, I they have to loop this person in it's keep asking them who that is. And then eventually um, I know we talked about this before and I didn't have to do it, but it's more so like, Hey, look, you know, I've been trying to reach out, trying to reach this person. Cause I know we need to make this decision. Like, I'm just going to let you know that I'm going to reach out to this person and to figure out what we need to do moving forward, like I'm just letting you know, so you can respond back if you want to, and then they will respond back because then they're going to be like, "Yeah, I don't do that." So those yeah. are like my two things. That it's kind of like you let them know you're going to go over their head, and that's yeah. the voicemail or email that I usually say, which is, "Hey, you know what? We've been working." And this is usually if they're ghosting you to a certain degree, yeah. right? where it's like, "Hey, look, we've been working together for a while now. You know, based on your priorities and your timeline, I haven't heard back from you. If I don't hear, and I say this, if I don't hear back from you in about 24 hours or so, I'm going to go ahead and give so and so a call, their boss." And that, like I said, like you said, that get, that's usually get a pretty high response rate. Cool. So any other, uh, any other questions on, from the group or anything like that? Uh, all the questions from the group are answered. I don't, I don't see anything that Lucas is picking me about the, the Facebook. So I don't know if there's anything that you just wanted to touch on. But. Um, no, just, uh, again, the, the, I think the, we hit on a, a, a nerve here with me, which is the data, right. And, and the analysis of the different channels and, and being very data driven with your decisions, you know, that, that post from Gong really, got me rethinking about uh data to support decisions yep um and how i think you know you know we need to we need to get better at it right i know we're good at it we need to be great at it and and you know this event coming up here this event season coming up here is a great opportunity for us Mm to you know figure out those conversion ratios of the different channels because you know, you could be going all in. We fool ourselves a lot in the sense that we think this is working, right? Because whatever, I might've gotten a good meeting the other day or something like that and that approach, but without looking at the data, without like, we don't really know if it's working or we don't know if something is, if else is going to work a thousand times better than that. So shifting our, our, our resources, our money, our investments into different channels, um, that's, we got to get better at that. And I think sales reps in general need to get better at that as far as tracking and looking at data and understanding their own personal equation, understanding where they should, that, and that's, I will say, that's what the best reps do. Some of them do it very uh, directly in terms of they're very analytical, but like the best of the best, they, they almost have just this innate ability to understand where to focus their time and energy, knowing that this is the highest value they'll get. Like, here's a perfect example, commission plans. Commission plans are, are if, if the company's smart, commission plans are meant to be exploited. They're meant to be exploited. There's always a gap in a commission plan, 
okay? Where if you do this one thing, you'll get 10X from a revenue standpoint compared to if you do all these other things. Mm-hmm. The company doesn't do that by mistake. They put that in there because they want you to sell that fucking thing, okay? And what happens is I see B, rep, B and C reps, right, all the time complain that, that these other top reps are, oh, it's easy for them because they're just doing this. And it's like they figured out the system. They figured out, they looked at the data, they look at their comp plan and they say, well, how can I make the most amount of money selling what I sell and in the least amount of effort, right? Not that I'm lazy. It's just, if I can take little effort and put it here and produce results, well, then if I double, triple, quadruple my effort on that, then my numbers are going to be insane. So, you know, be data driven, understand the process, know your conversion ratios, look at the different channels. And the more you do that as a young sales rep, the better you're going to be as a leader because then you can take that process and structure and apply it to other people. And it's not just your gut feel about how things work or anything like that. So that's what I'd probably end with here is, is uh, if there's anything I can recommend reps do is, is get, you know, get data driven, look at the data, make decisions based on that, take the emotion out of it. Question, I guess, question right here. What do you, what do you do when the commission structure changes or the CFL thinks sales reps are making too much? (laughs) Uh, that's frustrating. Uh, I, I, I personally, I left Xerox because of that. Uh, we had, um, the, the, I don't know if it was the CFO. I'm sure the CFO had something to do with it, but they put a cap on, uh, deals, right? So any deal that was over $300,000, you didn't get paid you didn't get paid additional commission for the deal. If it was, if it was a million dollar deal, uh, they, they paid you commissions on 300,000. And I was like, what? And so I, you know, so guess what? That million dollar deal that the company could have benefited from, I sold yep. 300,000 this quarter, 300,000 the next quarter. And you know what I mean? And I, I manipulated the commission plan because so to me, there is some, t- I think it's an expectation thing with the management to say, look, co- commission plans are meant to change. Okay. So sales reps need to just get the fuck used to that. You can't get pissed off every year when your quotas go up or the commission plan changes because businesses change, profitability changes, the investments change, those type of things. So you got to take your personal self out of this and understand there is a bigger picture involved here. Now, if the excuse though, is we put a commission plan in place that, that aligns with our business growth goals. And I just feel like sales reps are getting paid too much. Then fuck that CFO. Yeah. Like seriously, I'd be like, I would go to the CFO and could you tell me, could you, could you help me understand the profitability of the business here? Why did you put that commission plan in the first place? Are we losing money because of this commission plan? Because if we are, okay, I understand we all screw up. You know, we made, you know, we shifted the business or whatever it is, but if it's literally just because you feel like we're getting paid too much, then go fuck yourself. Because Mm -hmm. quite honestly, the best sales reps should get paid more than every other person in the company. And CFOs need to understand that. COOs need to understand that. Engineering needs to understand that. Because guess what? If the best sales rep is making it fucking rain, guess what's happening to the rest of the business? It's growing. It's growing. You're in your, like the more you keep the, and the more you cap commissions on sales reps, as long as it's not hurting your bottom line in your business, like the, to the, do the other stuff, is the more you cap, the more you're going to lose your top talent. 
Yeah. So I would straight up, I, I, I would have a very direct conversation with my, probably not the CFO, depending on the size of the organization. I would have a very com- a hard conversation with my, my manager and my VP and saying, is it really because they were just, they just feel like, or did they make a mistake in the previous commission plan that is actually hurting our business as an organization and, and not allowing us to grow? Because yeah. if that's a conversation, then let's have a business conversation about this. Help me understand as a sales rep where we can make more money and, and let's work together on this. But uh, it drives, because guess what? The other thing that pisses me off about this is that CFOs, they usually have stock options. So they're, what, if they're just looking at their salary, for instance, and saying, oh, I'm a CFO and I only get paid $200,000, but our top rep got a half a million dollars and I'm the CFO and they're just a rep and why is that happening? That's a dumbass CFO, all right? Because if I'm a CFO and, I got, and I'm making 200 Gs or 300 Gs and our top rep's making two million, I'm going, yeah. Because because I know that means my stock prices and my options and and my bonus at the end of the year is going to be bananas if right. sales teams murdering it. So, yes. yeah, I would just I, you know that frustrates me. Capping commissions on sales reps. That's why again, that's why I left Xerox. I was like, fuck this. Like, you're not going to pay me on those deals. I'm not going to sell those deals. Yeah, that makes zero sense. Yeah. yeah.